You texted me after you listened to the last episode. Why? I have a couple of problems with the last episode. I don't really give a fuck what people think about me. I mean, people can love me or hate me, and I know why I do what I do. But it is important to not malign the process of disengagement. In the last episode, I spoke with a sociologist named Pete Simi. Simi called into question some aspects of how Christian Picciolini helps people disengage from hate movements. We should have disclosed that Simi sits on the board of an organization called Life After Hate, which Christian was once part of, but is now fighting in court. Also, Christian wanted to address Simi's doubts about how many people he's helped. I wanted to be able to, for the first time in my life, open up my books to somebody to show them who I've been working with because I believe in how important this process of disengagement is. Can I see the spreadsheet? Of course. Christian showed me a spreadsheet of people he's helped to leave hate movements since 2014. There are 615 names on it. When you compare that caseload to fully staffed programs in Europe, that's a shockingly high number. But here's the thing. They're able to track that because they see things through to the full life cycle. I don't have the infrastructure to be able to document that kind of stuff. There's one name I know on this spreadsheet, a person who knows how recruitment to the white supremacist movement works today. So is Brendan on here? Brendan is on there. I look and note the entry under a column titled Stage. In progress. In progress. Hey. Hey there. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, so yeah, I'll press record now, I guess. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, how are you doing? Um, well, <laughs> uh, especially with this pandemic that we're in now, I'm not doing too well. Um, I'm unemployed. Uh, you know, my career prospects are looking very, very dark. No one really from my personal life will talk to me with the exception of my parents. This past spring and summer, 30-year-old Brendan Sweeney has been shut in his Northside Chicago apartment, trying not to catch COVID-19 and trying to stop being a racist. Uh, the only people who really will talk to me now are people in the movement. I mean, that's mostly who I'm communicating with. And there's just no future outside of doubling down and staying in the movement, which is something I've realized that I can't do if I want to live a fulfilling life. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you can't have, like, I've, I've reached the conclusion that you can't have, like, a good career um, and hold these views. When Brendan became a dues-paying member of a white supremacist organization, he thought he was joining something new. In truth, the only thing new about the movement Brendan joined was a shiny corporate veneer slapped onto the same old lies that young neo-Nazi skinheads had bought 30 years earlier. And, um, you know, before I start talking about those organizations, I just want to clarify that I've signed NDAs for both of them. But I just wanted to bring that to your attention before we proceed. NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. Today's young white supremacists don't shave each other's heads or get swastika tattoos to initiate new recruits. They draft and sign legal contracts. Brendan is what I would call the perfect 
result of Boots to Suits. Boots to Suits, the deliberate strategy in the 1990s to mainstream white supremacist and neo-Nazi ideology. Christian Picciolini was a neo-Nazi skinhead back then. Today, he's working with Brendan to help him disengage from the movement. He was kind of the result of that bridge when we tried to mainstream the ideology right when I was leaving the movement. Enrolled in a college campus, khaki pants and a polo shirt, Brennan is exactly what they need right now. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Odette Youssef, and this is Motive. The New Nazis. First, I just want to ask why you're doing this interview. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing this interview to make a clear break from the movement. And I think I have a long way to go, you know, before I make some substantive changes, to be perfectly honest. But it's a decision I absolutely have to move forward with, is breaking from the movement officially, which I'm doing here right now. If you Google Brendan Sweeney Chicago, the top result is Brendan's Docs. A docs is the publication of private and identifying information about someone posted online. It's a method used to expose extremists. Brendan's Docs detailed what he did during two years as a leader in the so-called identity movement. It's also likely the reason he's been unemployed much of the year. Any prospective employer who did a simple search would have found it. You know, I had a a well-paying, like, six-figure job right in the middle of downtown Chicago, which I had lost, like, immediately. Brendan wants a six-figure job again, and he doesn't want his top Google result to be Brendan the racist anymore. He wants it to be Brendan the reformed racist. That's why he agreed to talk to me. To be clear, Brendan isn't reformed, and he probably won't be for a long time. But he is at a crossroads. He's left the movement, and he's starting to re-examine his racist beliefs. Christian encouraged him to speak publicly on this podcast. I think it is finally going to put it on the record, in his own words, who he was and what he did and how he feels now about it and the steps he's taken to try and disengage. Explain identitarianism to me. It's advocating for the interests of white people, like really our main issue. Probably for most of Identity Europa's existence, the only issue we were really advocating for was an end to immigration, both legal and illegal. Brendan was part of an organization called Identity Europa. The Southern Poverty Law Center classifies Identity Europa as a neo-Nazi hate group. It was founded in 2016, and it took its cues from the identitarian hate movement that started in France. There, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim activists call for the creation of white ethnostates. They say people who share common blood and a native claim to the land should rule themselves. When identitarianism came to the U.S., it had to be repackaged. Because white Americans don't share common ethnicity, nor do they have a native claim to this land. Some young white people like Brendan bought it. I mean, for me, it was just like we want to hold on to what power we have and we want to, you know, gain what power we can back. The timing of the message couldn't have been better. 
In 2015, the U.S. Census Bureau was projecting that by this year, 2020, less than half of kids in the U.S. would be non-Hispanic white, and that by 2044, the country would be majority-minority. If anyone doubted things were shifting, they just had to look to the White House, where a Black man was finishing out his second term as president. To people like Brendan, people who on some level may even acknowledge racial injustice in the U.S., all this was scary. Like, we don't deny that um, minorities are not treated, you know, with the best of care in our society and historically have been. And what we're saying is we don't want to be in that position. That's what we were all about, that any sort of minority is going to be treated badly, regardless of the system that you have. In Brendan's view, and in the minds of many white supremacists, we live in a zero-sum world. If one person rises, another person falls. And arbitrarily, the thing they've latched onto to divide groups of people is race. Just like the secret knowledge Christian thought he had when he listened to white power music and predictions of a coming race war, Brendan came to think he was able to see things that other white Americans were blind to. There's this sort of, like, pretentious hipster vibe to it. We thought, like, oh, you know, we see this huge demographic issue coming before, you know, all these normal people do. All these people who just want to go to their local dive bar and, you know, drink light beer and, you know, watch the latest sports game and talk about the latest Netflix show are someday, you know, their lives are going to turn upside down. I spent hours interviewing Brendan, trying to understand why a young person joins the movement today. For him, it offered simple explanations for the deep disparities we see every day around us. You know, I'm open to new perspectives and just developing an entirely new worldview here. But like, I mean, you look at statistics on, for example, the statistics on average IQ and things like that, the statistics on crime, those are verifiable statistics. It's not just opinions. Brendan claims genetics are the reason for racial differences in IQ and crime rates. That's not true, but it's American Racism 101. Brendan's conclusions exist in a vacuum that refuses to acknowledge the effects of America's history and systemic white supremacy. It's the same statistical garbage Christian learned as a young neo-Nazi. What he's saying to you is like textbook propaganda. It is the textbook mainstreaming of blatant racism. These are all like nonsense factoids. And I'm putting up air quotes for radio listeners. These are nonsense factoids that people in the movement have been fed so that they never fully buy in to what is reality. The fact that Brendan fell for the same propaganda that Christian did 30 years ago still surprises me. First, Christian was a lot younger, 14, when he became an extremist. Brendan was over 20, and he was college-educated. During his college years, Brendan says he didn't consider himself on the right at all. But there were a couple of things that bothered him. He did improv comedy, and he didn't like being sensitive to the experiences of non-white people, something he calls PC culture. And he noted how the University of Illinois was taking in more students from China than any other college in the U.S. I mean, I, I was friends with a couple of them, but 
you had、um, a lot of students that were, you know, from China, you know, speaking in Chinese, like not really assimilating, and you know, it was almost like they had their own world that was within <laughs> our college campus instead of something that was more integrated. Brendan graduated in 2013. In the years after that. He watched as a new crop of young extreme right provocateurs started making waves, mostly on the internet. It was a jumble of male supremacists, Islamophobes, and conspiracy theorists. At the same time, the Black Lives Matter movement was continuing to spread across the nation. Brendan said he felt it sensationalized the murders of Trayvon Martin and other Black Americans. Brendan's affinity for the extreme right may have started with what, by now, has come to be just another policy position in America: that immigrants and immigration are bad. But that was just the gateway drug. Within a couple years, Brendan adopted more explicitly hate-filled beliefs. He embraced the label of racist. Well, we want to expand white privilege and deepen it, and I, I mean that in a way seriously.、Um, I do care about my people more than I care about other people. Just it wasn't until I came across Richard Spencer that I really adopted something—a worldview that I felt was more coherent. For a time, Richard Spencer was the golden boy who was engineering the revival of America's white supremacist movement. He had coined the term alt-right. Short for alternative right, which aimed to unite those disjointed extremists under one roof, he recycled tired assertions that whites are biologically superior to blacks, and argued for the separation of races. You got to remember at that time too, Richard was getting a lot of mainstream media attention that wasn't, you know, just blatantly negative. Spencer looked respectable. He dressed in suits. He was educated. He had dipped out of like a Duke PhD program to like become a professional racist. Just the way he was wording everything seemed eloquent to me, and I was like, "Well, what this guy is saying seems to make sense to me." Spencer was pushing the outer limits of what most white Americans might consider acceptable. Brendan said he adopted Spencer's views. But he didn't think Spencer's goals were achievable until another man showed up. I am officially running for president of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. The big thing that got me into this stuff was Trump's campaign. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending them. Like I remember, he had his. First speech that was kicking off his campaign. They're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. If you look back to what Trump was saying on the campaign trail, I thought like it was explicitly white nationalists. He's calling for a Muslim ban, like building a wall, like you know, deporting all these Mexicans and stuff. I mean, am I wrong? I remember feeling shocked when I first saw that video. But the shock wore off. As Trump's campaign went on, I really started consuming all this content. YouTube, Twitter, Facebook—they all still had algorithms where you could be like looking at like some pro-Trump stuff, and then you'd see like something wildly anti-Semitic, like right after that. How much time were you spending on your computer 
I don't know, <laughs> probably too much. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, probably way too much time. Brendan says he became desensitized to the racism and anti-Semitism. And when Trump won, against Brendan's expectations, he started thinking maybe there was a real shot at keeping white men on top in America. I mean, we thought with Donald Trump as the president, we could achieve our goals through the system peacefully. Brendan pins the blame for his involvement in the movement pretty squarely on Trump. Do you buy that? No. I mean, I blame Trump for for kicking over the bucket of gasoline that ignited all the little sparks that already existed. He didn't create the fire. They were there. They just weren't connected. What he did was came over and kicked over that bucket of gasoline that just joined them all. A few months after Trump took office, Brendan applied to join an identitarian organization called Identity Europa. I wanted an outlet to talk about this stuff with people because I lost so many friends, like just by articulating these views. And that needed to stop. I just needed to like stop posting about it on social media, stop talking about it like around friends. Like you'd get drunk and someone would say something about how they felt about politics. And then like after a few beers, I would say what I felt. And that was just like disastrous. Joining a white supremacist organization in 2017 basically consisted of exchanging a few tweets, emails, and a video interview. And sharing the results of a genetic test like 23andMe to prove that you were white European and not Jewish. That was sort of like, it sounds weird, but it was kind of like a resume (laughs) in the movement. When Brendan was being vetted for Identity Europa membership, he asked if there were any organized events coming up. The recruiters said, yeah, there was a thing in Charlottesville, Virginia, that was going to be pretty big. It was this unique opportunity for everyone, like, across the country to, you know, go there and have these views expressed in the public space and show the world that it wasn't just, like, this fringe thing, that there were actually real people a lot of real people who had these views and wanted to advocate for them. So here, a warning. We'll be revisiting the violent and potentially triggering events that happened in Charlottesville. Skip the next six minutes if you want to get past this section. Before the Unite the Right rally, the young people who were joining groups like Identity Europa were mostly interacting online. And even then, many used online handles that hid their true names. So the idea of meeting face-to-face and publicly coming out as unapologetic white supremacists was exhilarating. Brendan was fired up. But from almost the moment he arrived in Charlottesville, he started to see things were not what he thought they would be. This was supposed to be something new that weren't going to have the guys who we called 1.0. 1.0 meaning... Guys like Christian, guys like Tom Metzger, people who were operating in like the 80s or 90s or before. Like we weren't going to have those types of people be involved in this alt-right Charlottesville thing. But yet I got there and and there's David Duke (laughs) like right in front of me. Brendan's issue with the 1.0s wasn't ideology. They were all on the same team. But the old guys were embarrassing. Duke and Metzger had been hooded Klansmen at one point. Neo-Nazi skinheads were violent hooligans. Brendan thought he was better than them. 
His first night in Charlottesville, Brendan marched in a torch rally around a statue. The other guys there were like him, young and preppy, wearing white shirts and khakis. So we had crowded around the statue, and, you know, the, uh, the leftists were all gathered around the statue, and, you know, we were chanting back and forth. There were fights that were breaking out. And that was my first incident of activism in this thing, was that Friday Night Torch March. I remember, like, my heart was, like, really beating. Like, I was participating in something that had never really happened before within recent history. But yeah, I did get like a thrill out of the whole march itself. The next day, Brendan was excited to rally again with his fellow racists. He remembers arriving at the site. There was, you know, the protesters. You saw the black and red, this huge black and red Antifa flag. And then there's all these pastors that were chanting and clapping, love has already won, love has, love has, love has already won. And I remember, like, feeling this weird, weird feeling, like, as I was, you know, going through those pastors with that chance, you know, stepping into the rally space. And it was just so, like such a surreal feeling. Brendan said it felt surreal because just a few years earlier, he considered himself a lefty. He even had made a website to troll a notorious homophobic hate group. And just like how I had completely switched just within a matter of a few years. Like, I, I was now on the other side of what was called, like, hate or whatever. Because <laughs> um, that would have been me. Like, just like when I was, like, 18, 19 years old, like, protesting these, like, hateful people or whatever. And yet I was, you know, crossing through them, you know, into the other side, into that space. The cognitive dissonance didn't stop when Brendan crossed that line. The people at this rally were different from the ones he'd marched with the night before. One of the first things I saw was there was this guy <laughs> with this, this goofy T-shirt with a, a picture of Adolf Hitler's face on it. I just remember thinking, like, I, I was told that there wouldn't be people with, like, explicitly, like, neo-Nazi stuff. But yet, I walk in there, and that's, like, the first thing I see. Um, so, like, I mean, I didn't sign up for that. I didn't sign up for something that David Duke was going to be at. This is supposed to be, like, a new thing. And, you know, in retrospect, it was incredibly naive of me to believe that that's just how it was going to go. Like, we're just going to have this, like, optics-friendly, like, totally new movement with no references to any, you know, like, skinhead stuff or World War II Nazi stuff, and that's just how it was going to be. Brendan said he didn't find out until that evening about the killing of a 32-year-old counter-protester named Heather Heyer. 
it didn't we weren't aware like that it was going to be this like absolute disaster um and i don't know it was just like this real sorry if i'm like pausing so much but i'm just like i'm just processing this like now as we're on this podcast like just how i stayed in this shit for so long and it should have been in that moment it should have been after that event that i realized there was no future for that movement Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that and it's Chicago based. So you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. I always knew but in the back of my mind that eventually there would probably be a day when I was doxxed because of the high activity levels I, I was putting out there. The thing that Brendan still wonders about himself is, why did he stay in the movement even after the disaster of Charlottesville? I've talked about this with other people in the movement, like staying with this stuff even when you see everything's going wrong, but you still get like little hits of dopamine, like the thrill of, you know, some of the things that we were doing. I I did want to get back to those like thrilling feelings that I experienced like that Friday night and that torch march though. I mean, that sort of like addictive nature did stick with me. Brendan's activity in the movement actually deepened after the Unite the Right rally. Part of it was wanting to revisit the highs. But it was also that even after a fascist drove his car into a crowd and killed someone, the president of the United States signaled his approval of the white supremacists. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me. You know, he pretty much made an effort to like not denounce the people who were at that rally which I felt really good about, obviously, at first. I mean, I can't emphasize enough, the reason I got into this stuff was because of that man. Like, I think it's me and thousands of other, like, guys my age, like, in their late 20s, like, were radicalized by President Trump. Brendan says some people in his circles wanted to see non-white Americans forcibly displaced from their homes. He claims he wasn't that extreme, But Brendan says he did want to bring an end to immigration. And with President Trump, he felt there was a real possibility that could happen. Brendan took on the role of a kind of field organizer. My role in Identity Europa and in American Identity Movement was first to oversee the Illinois chapter. And that grew to the point at which I was overseeing several Midwestern states. So I was effectively Midwest Regional Coordinator. And what were the responsibilities? Uh, Hosting regular meetups, like typically at least once a week. You know, flyering, planning other big activism stuff. Brendan left his marks all over Chicago and far beyond. 
He hung posters and placed stickers for Identity Europa on a college campus, at popular tourist sites, and anywhere that would incite controversy. He and his pals unfurled a banner from the overpass of a busy highway leading into Chicago that read, Danger, Sanctuary City Ahead. It was a brief stunt that was broken up by police, but it got the media attention they wanted. And just like Clark Martell and Christian Picciolini, he set his sights on bringing more young people into the white supremacist movement. January of 2019 was probably the height. I remember that I had grown Illinois membership by 20%. Who did you think made good candidates for recruitment? I was looking for young professionals, typically, in their mid to late 20s. You know, people who weren't totally crazy, didn't talk about violence or glorify Hitler or any of that stuff. You know, people who were educated, had a good job had something to contribute. The fixation on optics, this no-Hitler, no-violence stuff, was a big deal. The Charlottesville failure had widened a rift among white supremacist groups. Some said it showed exactly the kind of violence necessary in their quest for a white ethnostate, that it was time to abandon the pretense and show what they really were, racist, Jew-hating, neo-Nazi fascists. But Brendan's wing, the Identitarians, emerged with the opposite view. They thought there was still a chance to mainstream their beliefs among white Americans if they distanced themselves from Nazis, skinheads, and the KKK. We kicked out people for, you know, saying and doing stuff that were overtly Nazi. Like if you were to sick Heil or something, you'd get kicked out. But if you were around like one or two friends there would be the sharing of content. Brendan said that in private, they got their kicks from looking at Nazi memes that attempted to normalize the horror. Humorous videos, music videos, that sort of stuff, you know, uh, satire articles that would be, you know, explicitly frowned upon, if you get what I'm saying. Christian Picciolini says it was boots to suits all over again another rebranding of white supremacist ideology to appeal to a broad new audience. But are they Nazis? Yes. I mean, maybe not national socialists, you know, ideologically, uh, but are they in value system? Yes, absolutely. I would argue that for, for all white supremacists, that ultimately their end goal is the separation or the diminishing of other races. In a perfect world... Whether you're a part of the American identity movement or you are a part of the National Socialist movement or you are an Adam Waffen division member, your goal is to live and sustain yourself separately than anybody who is not like you and about maintaining control of what they see as white supremacy. Brendan spent two years trying to quietly grow the movement but someone was keeping an eye on him. I mean, I knew that it was going to happen the day before. In early December last year, Brendan was doxxed. The person who did it had been corresponding with Brendan over Twitter, posing as an interested new recruit to identitarianism. In fact, it was someone with Chicago Anti-Fascist Action, an Antifa group that exposes fascists, neo-Nazis, and racists. You know, I sent him the link. He had his first interview. 
he didn't get all the way through the vetting process because he didn't want to sign the NDA. Um, but uh, basically, I check my Twitter one morning. It was a Sunday morning, like December 8th, I believe. And I see that he's like completely like shut down his Twitter handle, like changed it to something else, like ha 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 or something like that was the Twitter name. And yeah, I knew then that I was getting doxxed. The docs was posted the next day. It's long. It included Brendan's misogynistic and homophobic tweets, a timeline compilation of where he had left white supremacist propaganda, photos of his family's home in a leafy Chicago suburb, one of him dressed in a bow tie and blazer, and screenshots of Brendan interviewing applicants from his office at a downtown marketing firm. I was pretty careful about everything, so I was hoping... You know, they wouldn't get where I worked and, you know, other information. But for the most part, they got all the important stuff to just completely ruin my life. The first thing Brendan did was call his boss. It didn't make any difference. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I was fired a couple hours later. Antifa had also made it difficult for Brendan to show his face in his neighborhood. They wheat-pasted flyers with my face and my address on them all over Lincoln Park, really. Um, so I had to go out with, like, a grill scrubber and a bottle of Windex and scrape those off. Most of Brendan's friends cut off ties with him. His siblings stopped speaking to him. And his career fell off a cliff. I had, like, frequent panic attacks and stuff. I don't know. Like, it's... <sighs> I felt like I was really playing with fire. Um, like I had flown too close to the sun, and I put myself in that position. I mean, I was deliberately antagonizing these people for years. Um, and I had done that to myself. The thing about Brendan's docs is it showed him the steep social and personal consequences of getting caught. But it didn't necessarily change his convictions. So I understand you, you regret those personal decisions that got you into this trouble, but do you have any regrets about the belief system that you embraced and promoted? Um, I'd be lying to you if I said I'm a, I'm a changed person. I've seen the light. I you know, feel entirely different about all these issues, 100%. That's just not the case. And I, I don't want to diminish the experience of anyone else who's gotten out of this thing. But I, I question the honesty of anyone who you know, does say that stuff right after they get out of it. I interviewed Brendan six months after his docs, and he still sounded like a white supremacist to me. He called himself naive basically for pulling for the wrong team, for misreading the tea leaves and thinking America was ready for a white nationalist agenda. But even when Brendan seemed to approach remorse for certain actions, his reasoning was still twisted. You know, when it comes to things that have changed my beliefs on. I mean, you look at some of the neighborhoods where I was putting these flyers, like Logan Square. It's like, why did the flyers need to be there? Logan Square is a northwest Chicago neighborhood that until recently was predominantly Latino. Brendan went there one day and taped up flyers saying, it's okay to be white. Local news outlets covered it. You know, they're like undocumented people who, you know, this is their neighborhood. It's not like you know, a recent Mexican neighborhood either. Those flyers really didn't have any place in Chicago. Like maybe, you know, like Oklahoma or like Nebraska or something where there's still like white communities and there's still at least a, a chance that this sort of 
worldview could help those communities. Maybe there, but like in a place like Chicago, it's not going to accomplish anything. There are just so many layers of baseless assumptions here, like the one about residents being all or mostly undocumented Mexicans, or that only undocumented residents would feel targeted by the propaganda. But also, Brendan's regret isn't about spreading the propaganda. It's that he was wasting his time in a neighborhood where non-whites already were, in his simplistic view, ground that white people had already lost. But when I interviewed Brendan, he honestly seemed to be at an inflection point where he was willing to rethink everything. Would you ever have left the movement or rethought your involvement had you not been doxxed? Yeah, I mean, so it's weird. Like, I've corresponded with Antifa over email, and I've actually thanked them for what they have done for me. Um, It's probably going to sound crazy to just about everyone listening to this. But if I'm being totally honest with you, I don't think I would have if I didn't suffer the severe consequences I've gone through. This is one of the most interesting things about Brendan. He's actually working with Antifa to de-radicalize. Brendan's learned from his doxer about how his actions hurt people. And, I mean, I found out later on that, like, the flyers that I was putting in those neighborhoods, like, it, people required therapy um, from, like, seeing those flyers. There probably are other people in the movement who would take delight in the fact that people had to go to therapy for their actions. But that definitely wasn't the case with me. I emailed with Brendan's doxer, too. He declined to be interviewed on tape because just around when I contacted him, President Trump had tweeted that he would designate Antifa a terrorist organization. Brendan's doxer said he had suggested readings to Brendan, shows to watch, and concepts to learn about. The two have discussed their pasts, and Brendan shared details about the movement. He wrote that Brendan's decision to talk publicly with me, with his real name and affiliation, was not to be taken lightly and that the point of doxing Brendan was, quote, that it ends the supply of dopamine hits, ends the secrecy, and outs an individual to those who are harmed by their actions. He said the fact that Brendan's willing to leave his old worldview behind is reason for hope. I'm wondering, is doxing necessary in some cases? I think so. I I think so. Christian Picciolini says that for someone like Brendan, the docs brings them back to the reality of what our society should find acceptable. They choose this this lifestyle. They choose to publicly, you know, hurt and shame people, whether it's online or in person. Uh, and I think that they have to learn to deal with the consequences of it. And the fact that it is a toxic ideology that has historically murdered people and that that is not okay. In our society, that is not okay. Part of Christian's work with Brendan has also been to connect him to a therapist, which Brendan says he probably needed before he even joined the movement anyhow. In a recent email to me, Brendan said he'd just finished reading a book his therapist recommended, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. He wrote, That book has effectively challenged assumptions I held about what anti-racism is all about. 
de-radicalizing extremists is hard and long work. And like everything else, it's even harder in the age of COVID. How worried are you about Brendan right now? I'm worried about him because I know, you know, it's a perfect storm, right? Like all this is happening and he lost his job. He can't find a job. We've got stay-at-home orders. There's every obstacle possible in the way right now to this guy's recovery. You know, like he needs to to find an outlet. Uh, he needs to to interact with people to continue to challenge his narratives, to keep that momentum going. But he's stuck in his apartment by himself with only those old connections. I mean, I still do talk with some of them informally. It's not like, especially during this pandemic, like since I have no one else to talk to, frankly, I need to talk to someone. I mean, that's only human. Um, you know, sorry if someone has a problem with that, but I need someone to talk to. But no, I'm not, I'm not like joining any like official groups or any official like servers or anything like that. Just informal, like little texts here and there with individuals. But in another way, the pandemic has made it clearer than ever to Brendan that he's never going back. Our movement doesn't, the movement I was formerly in, does not offer a coherent solution to what we're going through now. But the movement is eager to provide explanations none of them based in truth. Now what you see a lot of people that I worked alongside are doing are pushing out anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. And even worse, like people I, I worked along with in leadership whose intellect I respected, are they've sent me stuff about how COVID-19, <laughs> the virus is coming from 5G cell phone towers. And, you know, I'm thinking here, like, I'm unemployed. Like, no one in my personal life will talk to me. And these are the people who I lost my career for, just people who are that dim-witted. Um, I, sorry to be so blunt, but all these people want to hear is crazy cult talk and conspiracy theories, and I don't want to be any part of that. But these conspiracy theories haven't struck all Americans as crazy. And it's just the opportunity that some in the movement have been waiting for. Next time on Motive, the Nazis that other Nazis are scared of. Accelerationists believe that there is a downfall of society coming, but that they need to kind of foster it, commit these kind of terroristic acts, pour gasoline on it, and encourage it to happen so it happens faster. Organizations have infiltrated the protest intent on stirring up trouble. Law enforcement intelligence warning that white supremacists may also show up in an attempt to frame black people as violent offenders and sow the seeds of a race war. This is the breakdown of society they've been waiting for. It just needed to be destroyed. The whole thing needed to be destroyed in order to employ fascism. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Odette Youssef. The producer is Colin McNulty. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Story consultant, Christian Picciolini. Our intern is Hannah Boomershine. Joe Dassault mixed the show. Original music by Stephen Jackson and Jesse Dukes. Special thanks to listeners whose financial support of WBEZ made this podcast possible. (laughs) 